Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's episode is sponsored by Major Lindsay in Africa, expert navigation of legal talent for 35 years. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest has over 25 years of experience across a full spectrum of corporate transactional work, including private equity, corporate finance, cross-border mergers and acquisitions, company sales, and international joint ventures. A partner located in the London office of Dorsey, he leads their UK and European private equity practice. Fabrizio Carpanini, welcome to Left Foot. Hi, thank you very much. Great to have you here, Fabrizio. Fabrizio, we're going to jump into some questions about business development. And the first one is really about you personally and your personal strengths and habits. What personal strengths and habits have allowed you to be successful in developing business? This is something that I've thought about for, for a long time but, um, without being uh, without being modest. I have over over the years felt there's been a degree of success in, in what I've done. I've thought about it in the context particularly of bringing on my younger colleagues who occasionally will come to see me and ask for, for, for tips and ideas. What I always say to them, and this is something that I've tried to focus on, is that first and foremost, and, and particularly for those that are, are starting out in their legal career, you've really got to know your stuff. You've got to know your what you know, whatever your chosen field is, and and mine is as as Nicole, you've just introduced it. Thank you. You need to know not only know the law, but you need to know the practice. You need to know what is common practice, what are the the do's and the don'ts. And that's really the bedrock for a successful career. It sounds obvious, many uh, clients or prospective clients take that aspect as a given, although clearly you'll be put to the test very early on in, in your career as to whether you actually know what you're talking about. A sound basic understanding of your chosen subject, your chosen practice area. And then I think particularly in, in the type of work that, that I do, it's about ensuring that you connect with the client and particularly the client's objectives and understand those right from the beginning. So I pride myself in um, always adopting as commercial approach as possible, particularly when it comes to negotiation. You know, the client, uh, generally speaking, will not thank you for taking sort of esoteric black letter law points. It's about understanding, as I say, what the objective is and helping the client achieve that. I mean, those are the two, the two main sort of aspects. So it's know your stuff and adopt a commercial approach. So that's an interesting point. When I've done work outside of the U.S., the word commercial is used to really describe being sensitive to the business issues. It is not something you hear as much in the U.S. If you could just describe that briefly, it really is talking about the business and the objectives of the business, whether that be shareholder value in a public company, or is there anything else you can dive into on that? Let me give you an example. You have a client that has come to you and wants to buy a technology-based business. Um, let's say that the, the target has developed some software that the client is particularly interested in acquiring. It's 
getting itself prepared to due diligence that software to analyze intellectual property it'll ask us as as lawyers to to help them in terms of analyzing the way that the software has been produced and as part of that due diligence exercise um, we'll be looking at um, the people behind the development of the software and the like and then it comes to actually negotiating the um, sale and purchase agreement. And if you're buying shares, there'll be a share purchase agreement. If you're buying just assets, there'll be an asset. But there'll be, whatever it is, there will be a, a legal agreement. And what I mean by commercial is that sometimes I see colleagues who will negotiate that document to the nth degree in as much as the warranties and indemnities that you want to get as a buyer for your client, you'll see that some lawyers might throw in the kitchen sink in terms of covering all aspects, all possible aspects of the business. The times when I've found myself negotiating opposite a lawyer that, say, focuses on the wrong issues, frankly, they may get bogged down with real estate matters. You know, you've got to lift the discussion away from things that, frankly, for this particular type of transaction just don't matter. The reality is, say, in this situation, the target operates out of leased premises on a short-term lease where there's no potential liability, where there's no value in the property because the target company doesn't own its own premises. And so there's no point wasting, first and foremost, the client's time, getting the clients agitated over over issues that actually just don't matter. So I don't know if that's a, a good enough example, but that's the sort of example that I have in, I have in mind. No, that's a great example. I do appreciate that. It's one of those situations where the client really has an objective, and we've heard this before, not going down a road that really is immaterial. That was a fantastic example. I appreciate that. Let's move to strategy. So you have responsibility and have had responsibility in your career for growing the practices for the firms you've represented. When you sit down each year with your objectives, whether that is to retain a certain level of business and then hopefully grow it a certain percentage, do you think out a strategy and work with your team on what your year will look like? And if you do create a strategy, how often do you go back and look at that strategy? I do do that, not least of all because I'm required to do it in terms of preparing my own annual budget for me and for my team to give Dorsey Management the opportunity to assess what it is that they can reasonably expect in the way of coming from our direction. There's, in effect, a, a business plan is visited frequently together with the budget is prepared before the beginning of a financial year end. It isn't, as you suggest, it's not a one-off document. It is something that I regularly go back to and and I'd say I'd sit down with my immediate colleagues and, and in the London office that involves me talking to two or three other partners and some of the senior associates who I like to involve early on. We'll sit down once every month or so with our plan to see how we're getting on. In terms of what we look to do, I think one of the things I've learned over the, the many years now that I've been practicing is that you can waste a lot of time and indeed waste 
waste a lot of money in terms of chasing things that, um, frankly, you should have known um, from the outset um, were not going to produce either anything or indeed the level of work that you um, might have hoped for. You need to be quite, you need to be very disciplined in terms of what you think you can take on and what your objectives should be and, and realistic. I'd say that we do our homework in terms of, let me take an example of where we might have five or six uh, target, in our case, private equity institutional clients that is reasonably frequently refreshed. We drop one, we replace it with another. But doing the research at the outset, knowing how many transactions that particular institution does each year, analyzing both the league tables and some of the other information just in terms of legal press, M&A press, as to who their current advisors are and working out what angle you might have in terms of competing with those other advisors in effect to win the work away from them. You know, that's all groundwork that one needs to do ahead of actually deciding how you're going to approach that particular target client. There's that strategy, if you like, for, for new clients. It's really important to, to do your homework and your groundwork before you launch. In a number of cases, you'll find that, in fact, they've been using a particular firm and indeed a particular individual at that firm for some time. And certainly in this type of work that I'm doing, and this is, this is also something that benefits me, it's actually very difficult to shift those personal relationships, to move those personal relationships. As I say, that's one of the nice things about the, the particular practice area that I'm in, is that once you've developed that personal relationship over a number of years, unless you really make a terrible mistake, I'm not saying you're guaranteed the work, but you're close to having a client for life. And so conversely, it's quite difficult to shift such relationships away from from your competitors but you can find angles for existing clients and as we all know you know the statistic is thrown out um, frequently about the the amount of work that one gets in any particular year 75 80 percent from existing clients and therefore emphasizing that you mustn't neglect what you have which already sits on your desk and for that it's trying to constantly find innovative ways of ensuring that you are staying if not ahead but alongside the competition because you know the you, your competitors like I'm doing in the first example for new clients are out there trying to find ways to shift that relationship away from me finding ways to ensure that you are constantly or at least as frequently as possible in touch with those existing clients to keep them away from the competition is really important. You hit on a number of things. The first is do your research. We use this word qualification. Qualify the opportunities you're going after. Primarily, you mentioned cost, right? Because there's cost involved, there's opportunity cost involved, right? Time that is going to be put into trying to gain new customers. We see the stickiness of clients with counsel. There's a lot of strong counsel out there. There are a lot of strong firms. So to transition a new client to your firm, 
would be somewhat part of that unique experience that something went wrong or they want a particular person that may have joined Dorsey or there might be a particular strategy they've seen you, Fabrizio, or one of your team members execute and they're looking for that. So I, I think those are all great points. There's a recent example where an organization that had worked with me and a colleague, but on the other side of the table for another client buying was a, a cinema exhibitor, a chain of, of cinemas in the UK that focused on art house. I was acting for one of the UK's largest multiplex groups and they decided that they wanted to get into more art house cinemas and so found this target business and bought it. I acted for them on the acquisition. So roll forward sort of 18 months or so and the sellers came to me to ask me whether I could help them on a different project. That is one of the one of the most satisfying ways, provided of course, you know, there are no no conflicts and this was related to, to cinemas but 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 a different aspect. You know, that's a very satisfying way of, of winning new work when you've actually have somebody on the other side of you or has been on the other side of you also wants to use you. You come away thinking, well, actually, you know, I must have been doing something right for them to see that I was doing a reasonably good job for my own client that they felt good enough to to actually want me to work for them as well that's another important sort of factor or feature obviously you were doing good work but you were also obviously representing your client well and the opposing side saw that and in that case they they knew that i was very familiar with with the the cinema exhibitor sector in in totality in terms of what makes a, a multiplex group tick is not just about selling tickets, but actually it's as much about selling the popcorn in the foyer, the drinks in the foyer. The fact that that whole industry has um, become digital over the last few years and how the studios actually deliver film. And, you know, this is a, an area that, as an example, I know a lot about. The sellers in this um, particular example knew that I know a lot about it and so thought I was the right person together with this colleague to use for this other project. I wrote down experience when you said that, but it's more beyond the experience. It's distribution. It's the things that we would normally expect a business to be looking at from the commercial side. And now a word from our sponsor. The road to success starts with the right guides. The team at Major Lindsay in Africa is passionate about helping corporate legal departments and law firms build great teams while assisting lawyers and legal professionals in following their career aspirations. Let Major Lindsay in Africa help you explore new horizons. For more information, go to mlaglobal.com. Fabrizio, you mentioned existing clients, 75, 80% of business stays with current clients, but you do need to continue to communicate with them and really stay ahead of the competition, stay alongside those clients. What forms of communication do you use or do you suggest that your practice use to make sure that your clients are hearing from you, hearing about your work? Is it mostly through email blasts? Is it through face-to-face -face meetings? Is it through symposia? What ways do you stay in contact with your clients? It's interesting. I, I think I can break this down depending on the type of client. 
if one has a, a number of clients who are entrepreneurs, individuals, in many instances, become friends at a social level, even with other halves going to the theatre, to sporting events together. That's something that comes quite naturally to me and where clients welcome that. I know that's not everybody's cup of tea. Where clients welcome that, I've found that over the years that that has really stood me in good stead. Thank goodness I have another half and she's very willing and enjoys it as well. Turning to the more sort of institutional type client, there are some individuals that fall into that former category that work with institutional clients. But but the more sort of institutional client, the important thing there is finding what it is that they're after. And this is where I'd like to try and bring in some of the younger members of my team, getting them to interact with colleagues who are at an equivalent level as they are in, in the client organization and offering seminars teach-ins, um, always with the excuse preferably of going to the client rather than having the client come to us, not least because there's more chance that you get a good turnout if you go to them rather than bringing them to you and actually being part of that but letting the associates, the younger partners actually do all the running there so that they also are cementing their own and building their own relationships within the organization. That strategy of making sure that your teams, your client teams have people at different levels. I interviewed Harvard Law School professor, Dr. Heidi Gardner. She wrote a book recently on the tactics related to collaboration. There are some strong tactics you can employ, and one of them is laddering. And laddering is the term used where you have a person at each level that matches the team at the client site so that you can build bridges at all levels. That way, as time goes on, you have a deeper bench of people at the client. People get promoted, people transition, and you're constantly building both your own team and the client team with people at the same level. It's become something that's more practiced because of technology. And the fact that you might have members of the team that are much more comfortable with e-discovery and the technology tools, it's called laddering. And it's something that you're seeing a lot of firms, McKenzie and some of the bigger consulting firms also start to do as a practice, something they do on every client team. It's very interesting. And I think generally, I'd say the legal profession, you know, whether it be in North America and the States or in, indeed in Europe, and maybe even less so further west towards Asia, we're generally not very good at it. And I think it comes from an inherent sort of insecurity that partners have in terms of losing the connection or losing the control of the client. It's understandable at one level because very often a partner remuneration is based on, on hard numbers and the like. If one particularly as a partner and if indeed as an organization can encourage partners to open their client book, that means in a controlled way and find ways to reward partners for doing that. I think that then encourages partners to bring along not just fellow partners, but but also the team. It has all sorts of, for the firm, wonderful benefits. It shows the strength in depth. It improves, to use your word, the general stickiness because if Fabrizio's not available, then they can call X, they can call Y. And then, you know, Fabrizio, when he becomes available, realizes that in fact, thank goodness, the client hasn't gone to another firm. It's still within Dorsey. It's something that I've always sort of spoken passionately about in the management 
roles that I've had both in my previous firm and, and at Dorsey now. I'm very aware that it's not something that comes naturally to everybody. I think I think we're getting better at it. Compensation absolutely does drive behavior. And that is part of the compensation challenge within firms is that it does feel threatening. You know, outside of lockstep, which is not that common at this point, there's a very interesting dynamic going on and, and would likely result in some change so that firms can be more effective even from a cost standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, I had a colleague, the point about developing those relationships along the ladder, if you like, come to me a few weeks ago and said, oh, you know, so-and-so at X institution, he's he's a high-level tennis player. Uh, I don't play tennis. Um, This colleague of mine, a senior associate, plays excellent tennis, and and he's sort of rather not sheepishly, but said, no, will it be okay if I, um, if I invite so-and-so out to, uh, you know, for a match? And I said, absolutely brilliant idea. And now they'll be playing regularly, you know, once every couple of weeks. That's a perfect way for this colleague to start to develop his own practice and his own relationships within this client. But also, we mustn't forget that they'll be chatting during the match, after the match. We will be able to learn what's going on, what's concerning the client at this particular time. It's just another way of plugging into the client. And that's something that people in my position should be encouraging. And um, people at the more junior level should be thinking about what it is that they could be doing to start developing their own relationships. Fantastic and great point. You mentioned differences in acceptance of laddering or this type of strategy in Europe and then that it does change as you go further west to Asia-Pac. Let's talk about global business development generally. Are there things that you've experienced in your role in growing the business for Dorsey and for your prior firm? Are there things that you've experienced globally that you would say, wow, that is really a different way there is a very clear, yes, you can do this and no, this will not be effective when it comes to developing clients beyond the U.S., beyond Europe. I mentioned at the outset the need to to really know your subject, ensure that you're delivering high quality advice. I have to say, certainly in terms of, of the U.S. And, and Europe, that is a prerequisite. I think if you head towards Asia and the like, I don't think that that point is is tested enough by the client. So in other words, I'm not sure that the client places as much emphasis on, on that point in terms of working out whether it's actually true and maybe it's to do with it could be either that it's just a huge assumption that because you are a qualified lawyer solicitor whatever legal qualification you have it's accepted in asia that um, you can therefore do the job and deliver the project or more cynically it could be that the client from that part of the world doesn't care as much I'm not sure that there is one answer because I've come across both instances where it's just an assumption and it's never questioned. And I've also come across um, situations where the client doesn't care. The client is more interested in the deal being done at any cost in terms of quality of advice. Whereas I think 
coming from that part of the world, coming back east and into Europe and into North America, quality is a must. The other factor, this is more important in terms of the more west you go, is personal relationship and trust. I'm not saying that uh, clients in Europe and clients in, in the US don't place importance on trusting their advisor, trusting their lawyer. They do, of course, they need to feel that trust. But actually in China, I've not long come back from a, a two-week uh, trip to our, our offices there, and it's absolutely essential there. And you, you cannot expect to be instructed by a new client in China just on the back of, of one visit or a couple of conversations. You have to work at it and by that you might be working at a relationship for anything between 9 to 18 months before you can realistically expect to get a, a chance at a project for a Chinese client. For them it is about very much about needing to, to know you well, knowing that they can trust you. It seems like it's even more personal in that part of the world. That is so interesting. Those two comments, they trust, but they don't verify, maybe. But they trust that because you work for a firm that has a brand and a name and that you have the qualifications to do what you do, that you'll be skilled at that. But then that relationships do matter. Relationships matter. I think inevitably this this will change over time. I had a client once that got to know me over a 12-month period, but who then also found out that my birthday was a set of lucky numbers for him. And that was another factor. It was almost like, what's your favorite color? It's red, brilliant. That's the color that matters in this part of the world. Almost um, one level without being disrespectful, not rational reasons for selecting an advisor. To some, um, these things matter. Prabhuji, you've had these amazing experiences. Is there a success story, basically a client that you were able to acquire for the firm you represented that you were either surprised that your firm was successful or possibly it was just the right way to go about it? Is there a success story you can share with our listeners? Uh, yes. This is going back a few years. I picked this as an example because it stood the test of time in terms of the relationship with this particular client. It's a private equity institutional client. It operates out of London. It's doing transactions between 50 and 500 million. This touches on the point that I gave with the example of the cinema group. Here, I was acting on the other side of this private equity institution. I was acting for a management team that was looking to raise finance to effect a management buyout of the business that they worked for. And they were actually, in effect, being financed by this private equity institution. So I was advising the management team. The private equity institution had another set of lawyers. We took several weeks, as is normal, to negotiate the documents. The deal was eventually signed uh, late. I think it was on a, on a Thursday night. And by pure coincidence, on the Saturday, I was at a, a party. I noticed somebody on the other side of the room. It's one of those situations where you see the face, it's, it's familiar, but you can't actually place the person. It was, in fact, one of the principles at the private equity institution that I'd been negotiating opposite. We connected and we spent an hour or so chatting and just sort of chewing over the deal that we'd just, we'd just done. And they were very happy um, that they'd concluded the transaction. My clients had, had been happy that they'd been able to raise the finance. And 
a couple of years or so after that, I went to to see him. This was when I decided I was going to move firm, and it was important to me that the client there were no uh, restrictive covenants that I was beholden to, so the client was free to to move should they uh, want to with me. So I approached the client and asked, were I to move, would they be minded to move to my new firm with me? And it was that point that the client shared with me um, that yes, it was something that they would like to do. But in answer to the question, well, what sort of keeps keeps you loyal to me? The particular individual who headed up this client said, what we like about it is the fact that even though you're acting for us and you act in our best interests, you don't beat up on the other side. Because their business is backing management teams, backing businesses, these are individuals that they, as a private equity institution, have to work with over the next, over the following five years or so towards an ultimate realization and uh, of their investment and an exit. And the last thing they need is an advisor who is going to cause distress and animosity in negotiating the deal on the way in. That was the point that he was making. You look after us, you get us the best deal um, in the circumstances, and you do it in a particular way, which is not aggressive, that doesn't risk the client's relationship between themselves, which, again, unfortunately, you you know, you do see sometimes. Fabrizio, those are two great points. First, doing exactly that and really being professional and really protecting the interests of the client, but also treating those on the other side of the table fairly so it is a positive transaction. The other thing, this idea of these non business functions and our world outside of our business world. In the last two years, I've gotten a very strong amount of connections in business because of the same. My husband's in the music business and I've run into my private equity clients out at very different hours and very different clothing. One of the largest deals that I closed in my business in the last year, I met the person, it was a CEO of a health plan at a concert. I think for a lot of the folks that are listening, we've heard this from other guests, your business will come or be solidified very often through those could be chance meetings, occasions where you're meeting someone in a different world. Absolutely. It happens a lot. Someone said recently on a Left Foot episode, when you're out doing what you do, whether that's with your children, whether that's with your spouse, the things that you have interest in, just being aware that people are making that connection with what you do professionally. Some might have the view that it's um, can be viewed as a somewhat sort of cynical. You're you're always out there looking for the next professional opportunity. But actually, I actually enjoy doing it. I'm not sure that I have a, a sort of dividing line between the two. It's become sort of second nature to me. I quite like it, and of course. There are situations, particular clients that one knows you wouldn't want to be spending much or any social time with. I think the more you develop your one's own career, if it brings success, you also have the, the wonderful opportunity of being able to pick and choose, which is the greatest luxury. 
There you go. As folks are just living their life. There's one point for the benefit of those that might be sort of just starting out, if you like, which is the point about pushing oneself, because we've all been in the situation where it's a, it's a sort of wet Tuesday evening and we know that there's an invitation that we accepted four weeks ago, but gosh, it's raining and it's 20 minutes away in a cab or on the, on the underground. Push yourself go. That's the thing. It's such the easy option to just bail. And I would say to everybody, you know, very, very rarely have I been to any uh, type of, sort of social engagement or, or indeed a seminar that someone's hosting that I haven't come away with something positive. And that may not be and won't, of course, always be a new client, but it'll be a snippet of information. It'll be somebody who's going to introduce me to somebody else. It'll be knowing something about the possibility of, of a, a new transaction that a client of mine may not have heard about and therefore helping the client to, uh, to, to, to find a new opportunity. Um, I'd say, you know, push yourself and make yourself do it. Uh, that's really important. That is great advice. And, and I can say when I go to those events and that is the case, you know, you make a connection just from that, you know, whether it's the store or it's something later in the evening. I absolutely agree. It's engaging, engaging in that event, in the work that you do and, and putting that effort in. Two more questions. One is, Fabrizio, have you seen something out there that you believe is an innovative way in either staying in front of current clients, talking to prospective new clients, anything out there that you think is innovative? I'm not sure that it's something new or innovative, but I think clients sometimes see or feel that when they're talking to to their lawyers, the clock is switched on immediately. And I think that's something that one has to nowadays, even with the pressure that we all feel, one has to be very, very sensitive to that and try and dispel or help dispel this this truth and reality. Finding ways of offering clients something, and some might say it's for nothing, but actually finding an opportunity to give the client value that the client knows actually it's a genuine give and they're not going to get a bill for it or an invoice for it four weeks later. And something that, that I find is, is working reasonably well and it also helps in terms of that regular connection is every now and again asking clients whether they are interested in, in depending on, on the type of business that we're looking at, some form of legal health check. And that's something that, you know, depending on how much actually has to be done, we may or may not charge for, but often won't charge because it, it allows us to connect not just with the principles of the client, but also with the individuals within the organization. If we're looking to see whether they've set up their um, standard form employment contracts well, then we'll be engaging with the HR director. If there's commercial contracts that needed to have been put in place, have proper schedules been kept of what's expected, allowing us to engage with a, with maybe the finance, finance director. So offering these services, depending again on the type of client, the sector, how frankly important the client is to, to you and the organization. We've started moving to sort of technological solutions with clients so the clients can, can post important documents to these sites. We as a law firm 
um, have privileged access to. So if a client needs particular help with anything, these might be routine contracts that they want us to look at from time to time just to ensure that everything is being done as it should be. Or alternatively, if they know that issues might arise on particular matters, projects, transactions, that they know that we can access those documents immediately to give them sort of real-time advice, setting up these sites with clients are proving also very useful. Those are those are great points. I mean, that whole idea of a legal health check and doing something proactive and then having the SharePoint type of solution where you can share documents. You were saying there too, along with that, that regular checkpoint on something. So almost a recurring review of documents, you know, all three are might be seen as newer, but more innovative ways of approaching uh, working with a client consistently. At a very sort of basic level, clients, some clients, not not all obviously, moving away from email. This presents certain um, challenges for law firms in terms of um, privilege and um, security. But actually, the number of clients that just in the last couple of years want to now interact with me on WhatsApp or iMessage, SMS, or in my recent China trip, WeChat, hugely popular there. I mean, yes, in China, there's still this love to exchange business cards, but actually, if you haven't got a card reader on you or on your iPad or on your iPhone, you're sort of frowned upon and then you're instantly sending each other WeChat invitations as part of that introduction in business meetings. I mean, that's new for, for somebody like me. It goes beyond with a client, uh, you know, to get him to look at his emails because there were one or two documents I had to get him to, to see was a real struggle because, you know, he wanted to do everything over WhatsApp. Really something that folks working in China, and we do have international listeners, probably more typical of their experience than others. Great information. One more point before we say goodbye. What do you enjoy most about the work that you do? I can hear the energy through your voice. You and I have met, and one of the things that was clear from our meeting was the fact that you have positive energy. What, what do you enjoy most about the work that you do? This is why I chose the M&A and private equity discipline, if you like. For me, it was about seeing clients achieve their commercial goals in the way of either the successful entrepreneur that has built a new business around a particular service or a product, and then seeing him realize value in selling and, and maybe then doing it all over again but actually helping the client being part of of that value creation and value realization is I just find that really really exciting being part of it and likewise you know the client that is looking to grow its business buying businesses and expanding and particularly expanding across borders I really enjoy that as you may have worked out from my name that's something we haven't touched on but I do speak fluent Italian and anybody who has the benefit of of a second language and is in the law or thinking of entering the law, I'd say do everything you can. Indeed, if you've got a second, third or fourth language, develop it, keep on top of it. Because for me, the opportunity to use my Italian has given me another business development opportunity that really I've seized from day one. The chances to work for Italian-speaking clients, that really excites me, the opportunity to use 
in my case, this second language. And I do, depending on the month and the year and the particular projects. This moment in time, I'm using Italian 15, 20% of the time. It might then swing back to 10, but it could even get to 40 or 50%. That's exciting, um, you know, using second language, being involved in a different cultural challenges um i i enjoy that so there's a whole host of things that uh, gets me out of bed in the morning excellent well fantastic informative interview and enjoyable interview fabrizio thank you pleasure thank you thank you very much thank you for listening to this episode of left foot be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot.